0: Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and we're glad to have you with us again or for the first time on this podcast where we talk to members of the Notre Dame family about their lives, important decision moments, and how they have found their individual call to holiness. And so I'm pleased to be joined this week by Patrick Kearns, Patrick is a 1992 graduate of the university, graduated with his Bachelor of Arts in Fine Arts, and he's also a fourth-generation funeral director in New York City. So, Patrick, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here.
0: Patrick's joining us remotely today out in New York, and so I'm glad for you to take the time to do that. But if you could just give us a sense of your own background and where you're from, please.
1: I am born and raised here in New York, born in Queens, where my family had a business and then raised on the south shore of Long Island, and then uh, moved back to Queens here after graduating from college.
0: Okay. Okay, good. What were some of the important memories during childhood that stick with you as kind of important markers in your life?
1: Um part of a big family i am the sixth of eight children so family life growing up with a lot of siblings you know doing everything as a family eating together vacations all just created a very strong family bond that we we enjoy you know we always say the greatest gift my parents ever gave us were our siblings Mm. and i think you know we were we went to uh Public school for our education uh, through uh, elementary and through high school, but our you know faith life was always a very important through through attending mass, you know, youth group as a kid, teenager, and and being very involved in our parish. I guess growing up.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And as you thought about your life and you know what you would do with it, were there some hints of that during your childhood, or how did that? discovery come about
1: you know our my family's business my, my father you know, working in in the funeral homes and kind of coming home we we always were kind of raised on whether it was kind of work stories about things that were happening things going on with my father's his father and his uncles and uh, how the business was running and so kind of raised in and around it but I, I don't think I ever saw myself you really entering the business uh, until much later in life, but it was something that we we definitely grew up in and around. Every Sunday after after church, my father would always insist on stopping by one of the funeral homes so that he can take care of some things. My mother was never happy about it, but uh, <laughs> you know it was still kind of a regular regular Sunday activity it was after church, stopping by the funeral home and be given some some crayons and a pad from one of the casket companies and uh, left to just kind of entertain ourselves in the funeral home while while my dad took care of some some business, uh, some work. Mm-hmm. So it was just something we just kind of grew up in and around, but not, you know, never any kind of, I never felt any kind of you know push or pressure or anything to to kind of come into the family business. You know, I think my father really felt there was something that if it was going to happen would be great, but wasn't didn't didn't push for it.
2: Mhm.
0: Yeah, and I think there is um, a certain rite of passage as a child when you experience death for the first time or or go to your first funeral. I certainly remember being in second grade and going to my grandfather's funeral and 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 kind of trying to make sense of all that my inclination is that you had an early dose of that, given that your father was involved in this business. What was kind of your understanding of death as, as a young person and was it affected by being around the funeral home so much?
1: My earliest memory, I, my strongest funeral memory would, would be my grandmother's funeral, Mm -hmm. uh, my mother's mother. And remember a very weird feeling in the funeral home because it was someplace while we were very familiar with we spending so much time there being there for for the funeral you know of someone we actually knew or a grandmother was was very different mm. and I, I would probably say that i really didn't like it i i almost looking back the surprise that i that i came into doing this because i i felt that it as something that i i really didn't like being there for that funeral mm-hmm. but the you know we were i think while we spent a lot of time kind of in and around the funeral home poking around curious looking behind you know everywhere there was a curtain you know you'd be <laughs> want to look behind and see what was there or you know a lot of curiosity like that it was still I think the idea of kind of what my father actually did was still not, was something I didn't really fully comprehend Mm -hmm. until much later.
0: Okay. That's really helpful to hear. I I imagine it's just a unique, a bit of a unique perspective that most people wouldn't have grown up in that environment, but still there's some commonalities there when obviously you know the person intimately, that that the reality of that death is still something that's really hard to deal with
1: yeah yes. And that's what you know that kind of connection, and that's you know even now obviously might make things much more difficult when there is that that strong personal connection. Sure to it.
0: Yeah Well, good. In terms of thinking about college and, and growing into that discernment, what factored into your decision to come to Notre Dame?
1: Well, it's funny. my father he was he was a Fordham graduate. Okay. And I definitely grew up in my household with a very strong, my father, very strong respect for the Jesuits. Mm-hmm. And when each of my siblings, uh, when we all were looking to go to college, you know, we all went to public school for our elementary and, and high school. But my father felt very important that we go to a Catholic college. Okay. Uh, he thought that was a very important part of our Growth and development to be in a community that has you know faith and service as as a core part of the community. He, he thought that was more important for your college years than actually your you know kind of younger education years. Okay, and so it was kind of a I guess it was a rule that we had to that we had to go to a Jesuit college, <laughs> <laughs> and so my five siblings before me you know went to Fordham and Holy Cross and Loyola and you know when my time came looking at colleges i was looking at things a little differently because i i ran track so i was being uh, recruited by colleges all over the country Mm -hmm. but you know again my father was the largest state schools you know they weren't really don't bother looking at those you know (laughs) again looking at kind of jesuit schools but when notre dame came calling they kind of made an exception (laughs) and while while notre dame wasn't jesuit it would it'd be good enough okay (laughs) you know then also just as a kid involved in sports you know i think anytime uh notre dame comes calling it's it's a lot once i had the opportunity to go out and visit and and see the school and be invited to be part of uh, a community a place like notre dame it was really not a difficult decision to make okay
0: okay Great. So, were you part of the track team? If so, what kind
1: of events did you do? Yeah, I ran. I ran long distance. I was uh, like a cross country runner, uh, and then in, in the track, I ran uh, the five thousand and ten thousand meters.
0: Not for the faint of heart. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> you know, I say when you run track, you you run as as short as you can for as long as they'll let you. So, if you're fast <laughs> enough and you can continue to run the hundred meters, that's great. But you know, eventually. Uh, you know, if you're not fast enough, you got to keep on lengthening the distance. Right. So, so, you know, in high school, I could be a miler, but come college, uh, the mile was not in my in my future.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had to go longer if I was going to okay. stay in the game. <laughs> so eventually, as long as you could go, that was that's what I needed to stay competitive.
0: Well, that's great. Can you tell us about some of your most important memories and moments, either or both, here as a student and as a, a student-athlete?
1: Yeah, being at being at Notre Dame, being part of uh, an athletic team there is just an unbelievable experience to have, and, and and definitely very blessed to to have been there. Certainly, the highlight experience athletically, we we finished third in the NCAA's and cross country when I was a, a senior. Great, and that so that to be a kind of a podium finish, yeah, is uh, that that was unbelievable and. But the years and the time building up to that, the team that we had, the bonds that we developed with each other were unbelievable. We, you know, truly had some, you know, created some very long lasting friendships, you know, that when you suffer together, you know, (laughs) put in a lot of miles, you develop a very strong relationship. But we also, you know, at a place like Notre Dame, uh, there is also, you know, I feel like the faith component, which is very different. Mm. As you know, I don't know how many cross country teams would go to mass together, right? Or you know, would even pray together
2: mm-hmm.
1: before a race. You know, that's a I think a different component that that we shared at Notre Dame that I think is, is special. You know, and the same thing on the I feel like on the kind of student life side of things. You know, every every dorm having a chapel, and I lived in Keenan Hall, and when I was at Keenan Hall, I. I was also the uh the liturgical commissioner that's what it was yeah. called so i was i was keenan's liturgical commissioner and spent you know spent every sunday worshiping with fellow keenanites in our chapel mm-hmm. and it creates another kind of strong family bond. you know the same way going to church with my family every you know every sunday growing up and the extended family that your dorm then becomes and and the fact that you're living together and eating together and worshiping together. And I think that all lends to, you know, some of the things that makes makes Notre Dame such a special place.
0: Sure. And, and probably helped in the sense that your dad wanted you to come to a Catholic college, university, probably so you could grow in your faith at that critical time. And it sounds like you found that here.
1: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, he always felt early on, I remember, because there were a lot of discussions as far as kind of Catholic education and, you know, Catholic schools in New York back when I was younger were, some of them were closing because of number of students was down. And, you know, my father felt it was important that as kind of a Catholic family, that his children were present in the public school system Mm -hmm. so that there is and was a Catholic voice in the public school system. Mm. And I felt that very strongly when I was in high school, and you know, debates would come up over things without being able to be there and add a Catholic moral perspective to the argument to to be able to contribute in that way, he always felt it was very important. And I definitely saw that I felt that as, as a high school student, especially. Mm. but college as a young adult i think he felt at that point when you are really you know i think doing some of your your most important growth then to be in a community of in a catholic community Mm. was important i i look back on that and now, now i've raised my children the same feeling the same way that it's you know, they did a mixture of Catholic school and public schools, but I know that they also kind of lent that voice to, to the public schools when they were there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important that we do that.
0: Yeah, the sense of giving witness to the world, I mean, being leaven for the world, I think that's what we're called all to do, uh, whether it's as children learning that skill, but also in our lives and professions. What did you end up studying at Notre Dame, and how did that lead possibly towards your career?
1: Well, I ended up studying it when you know when I went to Notre Dame, you know while I was a a good athlete, I was not a great student. okay I have to I have to admit I definitely uh, ran my ran my way into Notre Dame <laughs> and and I struggled academically, uh, especially in the beginning. You know, my freshman year was was a difficult year academically. So I had taken a lot of art classes when I was in high school and in middle school, like all growing up. I always had a strong connection and, you know, I guess some talent for for art. And I also, <laughs> to be honest, I, I was the person who didn't send back any of his uh, paperwork. When I arrived at Notre Dame, I didn't have a schedule. <laughs> I had no classes selected. Okay. So we had to kind of do a little bit of a scramble and because I always have drawn to art, that was kind of some of the, my schedule kind of got a little bit heavy with art classes my freshman year. Mm-hmm. And, and I enjoyed it. And I saw that if, if I was gonna, you know, just felt that as the, the freshman year went on to the second semester and, and you know, looking to sophomore year, if I was gonna succeed here, staying in an area where I, where I could compete, I could excel academically if in fine arts, so I I decided to stay with that. Not really thinking about the long term future, uh-huh. just kind of living in living in the present at Notre Dame, running, trying to keep keep those grades up, and yeah, keep pushing through. So I didn't think much about what that would mean for me in the future, but I it was more about what I could succeed at in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so upon graduation, of course, then it comes to the point, well, I can't run anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to, I, I had met my wife when I was at Notre Dame. We both were actually art students. I knew after graduating, I knew I wanted to get married uh, and I knew I wanted to start a family. Um, those two things, I you know, I felt pretty strong about. And so I, I looked at just, you know, what my father had done and just felt if I could, you emulate that come in work work in the business and it, it would provide an opportunity for me to kind of get married and and raise a family and i saw that my father was able to do that successfully he was able mm-hmm. to support and raise a family uh, maintain a a good marriage with my mom so married so i, I just thought it, it was it was such a good example and sure. it was right there for me so i decided to pursue it to to follow up with it, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think the the art always finds a way to kind of come through. You know, whether it's restorative arts for you know when it comes to uh, uh, funeral work and embalming and sure. uh, some restorative arts, and they come in there. You know, otherwise, just trying to find other ways to kind of channel that those things, whether it's you know landscaping and gardening or you know, learning how to sheetrock and paint and, you know, finding other, finding other outlets for that kind of physical, for that kind of, for that outlet.
0: Yeah, to be able to use that both in a professional and practical way. I do want to turn to marriage because I think that's such an important part of your story, given that you chose that vocation. If you could tell us a bit more about your wife and kind of the development of that relationship, how that led to marriage.
1: I met my wife, Jean, Jean Hayes. We were sophomores. She was taking a class with uh, Father Austin Collins. Sure. Who, to this day, takes credit for, for us getting married. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, we met in Father Austin. You know, my wife was taking Father Austin's class, and I had taken it the year before. So, I was actually, to be honest, my wife, someone was teased about it. I was, I was more drawn to her work at first. huh? The, the artwork, the sculpture she was working on, it was, she was very talented, and that was very obvious right away. So I was more drawn into her work. And then, you know, after coming in and, and looking at the work, and then, of course, then, you know, obviously then being drawn to the artist afterwards uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> very strongly. But so we dated through, our, you know, sophomore year and it's a junior year and senior year, kind of continued dating all through Notre Dame. And then. I stayed in Notre Dame for a fifth year, um, and she went abroad and, and got a master's uh, abroad in Ireland. And, uh, you know, after graduating, I moved back to New York, and then Jean had moved back home to her home in Illinois. And so then I had to start working on getting her to New York.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> so she, uh, she eventually did. She, she moved to New York. And got an apartment with a roommate of hers from Notre Dame, who was in New York at the time. Uh, no job, but she moved to New York. She had a an apartment and a roommate uh, and then I think she started temping and then eventually got a got a job in new York and Probably about after she had been in New York for about a year is when we got engaged uh, and got married. okay. And that was 1994. So we've been married, uh, I guess about 26 years. Yeah, going on 27 years. Great. Yeah, we have uh, five children and one of them is one of them is at Notre Dame now, uh, my son Aiden.
0: Great. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. You know, you don't you know get married stay married for that long by accident. What are what have been some of the lessons and tactics that you think You've used, and has worked for you and your wife as you've maintained that relationship.
1: Both of us were very fortunate to have extremely good role models. Uh, My parents—they're—they're still married, going on over fifty years married. My wife's parents uh, married a long time before her parents passing, so we had we had really good role models, people to show us what what a marriage looks like, Mm -hmm. and. You know, so we have that foundation. My wife and I also we continue to do uh, pre cana we are on the pre cana team for our yeah, our diocese. And we say that we we do that as much for ourselves as <laughs> as for the young couples, sure. um, it's like taking a little refresher course, you know on what what you need to do? what are the what are the tools to utilize uh, in a marriage, which, Ultimately, you know, like you tell, telling couples comes down to communication and understanding that it's, you know, people think of marriage as, you know, 50-50 or things like that, which try to explain to couples, it's not, not any stretch 50-50. It's going to be, you know, 75-25 or 100-0 or 60-40. You're always, there's always times where you're going to be called to give more. Mm-hmm. To support the other person,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you have to be willing to willing to to do that to give more than a hundred percent of yourself because you know your partner is not able to give anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you realize that, I think that's a, a kind of an important realization in a marriage. If you're expecting that, well, we're each going to give fifty fifty and kind of get through this by you know each pulling our own weight. If that's that's what you're thinking, then I think you got to rethink it and realize that it's not just pulling your weight. There's many times you're going to have to pull the other person's weight for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in time they're going to pull your weight for you.
0: Right. Yeah. Some of those <laughs> thinking about kids. Some of those early mornings or very very late nights and kind of looking at each other, thinking, "All right, I've done as much as I can." You know, it's just try and pick up the ball here or whatever it is, but. Right. Th- there's an understanding there that, that you'll be there for each other.
1: Yeah. Or even like I look at now, like as we go through, as we went through this pandemic, this, this past couple of years, you know, there was a time, you know, during the height of that pandemic, mm. I couldn't contribute anything to our marriage. Right. You know, I needed Jean to, to pull all the weight at that mm. point. And then some. Um, you know, and and she did. And... Those, those are the things that, that really, really what make uh, and allow marriage to continue and, and thrive.
0: Yeah, we've often talked with married people or married couples on the podcast about you make the vows, but then when you live them, you put stories around those and come to understand more what the vows mean as life goes on, for sure. So, and, and then turning to parenthood and fatherhood for you, what have been some of the joys of that? And and uh, also some of the, the challenges or just the inherent ways that fatherhood has asked things of you with five children?
1: Yeah, fatherhood is great. I think if there's, you know, the time spent with my kids, I was very fortunate when I, when my two oldest were little, my wife uh, worked full-time and I was a full-time stay-at-home dad. Mm-hmm. And I did that for a few years. And then when it came time for uh, one of us to kind of go back to work full time after, I think it was probably after our fourth child, my wife worked, I was full time like home with the kids through the first two kids. When the third was born, it was more of a split. And then when our fourth child was born, it became one of us. uh, It was almost a little bit of a not a fight, but kind of who is going to get to stay home with the kids and who was going to have to go back to work full time. <laughs> so, you know, cause it, it's, I think parenting is just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And especially with young children where you get to live in the moment with them and it's, it's just, it's wonderful, but it's also the most difficult thing you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you know, kind of waking up with the Waking up the baby, or who's going to get up with the baby, and <laughs> little children—you know, little problems. You know, big children, big problems. You right. know, <laughs> so. But even out of any anything that was difficult with uh, the kids growing up and raising them is all far outweighed by by the joys of raising them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Having a big family, having five kids, which. You know, we always prioritized and 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 still eat dinner together, together every night. Mm-hmm. I've had people talk about trying to come up with one meal a week. Or, you know, we were fortunate; we were able to to eat together pretty much every night mm-hmm. through their through their growing up years, which is which is is obviously not new to anyone, but it it's still still I think sometimes underappreciated how how important that time is. To eat together and spend time together you know sitting around a table listening to each other mm-hmm. talking to each other eating together
0: yeah it's a simple thing but yeah. can have very very profound effects in, in terms of imparting the faith on your on your kids sharing sharing that faith uh, giving them that deposit of faith what what did you think worked in uh, in that endeavor
1: Mike might- Kids all went to, uh, you know, parochial elementary school, Catholic elementary school, Uh and then they went to public high schools, you know, so they had, they would attend mass regularly with their classes. And, you know, so they had a lot of, you know, catechisms and, but, you know, as a family, you know, going, obviously going to church together on a Sunday that, and as the kids became teenagers and that wasn't an optional thing, that was Mm -hmm. an expectation, Sure, you know, to kind of keep them but I don't know what I think ultimately it's setting an example because I don't think it's just that we took them to church every Sunday. You hope that that sticks, you know, that you just take, (laughs) I have at my adult children. So my oldest Fiona, she's 26 and she'll still, she still goes to to mass every Sunday, 830. She lives in the neighborhood near us Mm -hmm. as an adult. You know, it's not, you know, now she's not, you know, not a kid not being told you have to go to church, but, you know, choosing as an adult on her own mm-hmm. to attend mass. I think that happens because of of setting of setting example. Um, they, they children need to see see the faith lived in your daily life and through your actions, you know, which in my profession it is a little easier, I think, because it is you know, borders on, on kind of like ministry, it, it's sure tending to people in, in a very difficult time requires a lot of compassion. And, you know, so I think they, it's easy to set, it's easier to set that example. You know, some professions is a little harder, but you know, your children see the decisions you make every day. So if, you know, you continue, continue to live, live that message, not just you know sit for an hour every you know every sunday you know you have to i think just you know leading leading by example let them see how i bring christ into my everyday life how you through how we how we speak to other people how we treat other people how we treat each other you know all 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 just think just little things you know that that add up
0: yeah, that it—the faith really permeates your whole life, not, not just one hour a week, but it's it's part of who you are. So,
1: yeah, and, yeah.
0: And and your one of your other sons, uh, not only is he a Notre Dame here, but he's actually a seminarian. So that's uh, pretty significant in, in the sense of being attracted to that life of wanting to give himself in service to the church. Obviously, he's still discerning that call, and that's fine. But what was your and your wife's reaction to that? And what's, what's it been like to be the parent of a seminarian in Holy Cross?
1: Yeah, Aiden, uh, my son Aiden, who is uh, living in old college now, discerning, discerning the priesthood. Aiden, you know, we used to talk about in our pre-Cana class, we'd talk about and ask uh, the other couples kind of who in their life was kind of maybe the most spiritual person they know or kind of talk about spirituality. And even as a kid, Aiden was always, you know, a spiritual person. He, he has, uh, he, and would have just a, I don't even know how to describe how to describe Aiden, <laughs> but he, he always had it. And we would, we would, we would talk about that. And, and my wife and I both would come up with the example of, you know, uh, separately of kind of in our family and who, who we see as, as a spiritual person. And, and Aiden would always come up. And ever since he was a young kid, he talked about wanting to become a priest hmm. when he was, I don't know how old he was. He was pretty young. There was a, a wonderful priest in our parish, uh, Father Tom Catania, who was just, just a wonderful priest, brilliant priest, yeah. Uh, and Aiden was talking to him one day after church and, and he, uh, after mass and he, and he told Father Catania, he said, I, you know, told him I want to become a priest. And I think he asked him why. And he said, so I don't have to get married. <laughs> and, and so Father Catani said, you know, Aiden, there are a lot of things you can do and, uh, you know, and not, not get married. Right. Like that's you know, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's what he had said in joke, but, but he, no, he, he continued. He, he always talked about, he would, kind of bring that up, that this is what he felt he was called to do. And I think it's probably probably the most difficult, one of the most difficult paths you can take, uh, especially today. Mm-hmm. It's an extremely difficult path to take and not so, not one to be taken lightly, which is, you know, why there's a discernment process, you know, but I, it was not something that I wanted him to do be, for us, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that we immediately, you know, started patting on the back and said, oh, yes, you should become a priest. It okay. didn't feel my wife and I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do there. You know, obviously, continue support in the decision? But those younger years when he was younger, you know, let it if this is what he's going to be called to do, you know, then he'll continue to be called to do this. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't need us you know, working behind the scenes to, to see that it happens, mm. you know, let it, let it come to him on his own. And then when he was graduating high school and it was still, you know, very uh, upfront in what he wanted to do, you know, we started then kind of helping him kind of look for, all right, if this is what you want to do, what, what opportunities are there for you? And which path to, should we take? To get there and you know so we were exploring we weren't even exploring Notre Dame you know we had gone to Notre Dame but we're not you know, my wife and I this is not you can walk in my house and I have a lot of friends you can walk in their house and it's very obvious they went to Notre Dame <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can come in my house and to be honest with you I think somewhere there's a play like a champion Lou Holtz thing that I won in a raffle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but other than that, there's really no evidence of Notre Dame in our...
0: Not the den full of, you know, the wall of memorabilia or anything. Yeah.
1: So it wasn't like he would always wanted to go to Notre Dame, or we always wanted him to go to Notre Dame, or any of that. Sure. You know, we looked at whether well, it goes to a diocesan seminary, looked at a couple of other orders, lo- looked at looked a at, uh, Jesuit order, but he didn't want didn't to do that. And then he, he, got a, he got a letter in the mail from uh, the director of vocations at Notre Dame, inviting him to come out and take a look at kind of old college and the program. Uh-huh. Now, Aiden is, at the time, he's a senior in a public high school in New York City, in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, it's actually, he, he's attending uh, LaGuardia High School, which is the, the fame school, you know, mm-hmm. where uh, the old TV show and the movie Fame uh, is based around. Uh, okay. So it's a performing arts high school. So it is probably the furthest place from an incubator for a seminarian. You know, like okay. it was the yeah. furthest place where you would where you would expect to find I think find a seminary student. But somehow and this is I, I to me is is proof of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in in the calling to vocations that they found him the holy cross Mm. found him in this public high school in manhattan and they sent him a letter and it was only after receiving that letter we said oh do you want to go out and go out and see notre dame do you want to go out Mm. and look at that wow and he did so we took a trip out to notre dame and he kind of met the guys at old college talked to them there and and he really liked it he liked the men in old college you know so we started the process with them which is which is a pretty uh and as it should be, a, a very selective process of, mm-hmm. of interviews with the Holy Cross, and you know they decided that they would accept him into Old College, and he was waitlisted at Notre Dame. So he actually got into the Gateway Program. Sure. And he spent his freshman year as a Holy Cross student, living in Old College, and then transferred to Notre Dame as a sophomore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a phenomenal program, the Gateway Program. Yeah, it's an yeah. opportunity as well. Yeah.
0: That's so great that, you know, he had uh, those opportunities and, you know, like you said, you can see the movement of the Holy Spirit and that just that you, had, uh, you and your wife had created that supportive environment all the way. And I, I would imagine that he also saw an aspect of ministry in, in your work, in your being a funeral director. As you said, you are able to live your faith in that way. Can you give us some insight into what life as a funeral director is like?
1: I would say the you know life as a funeral director is uh, a lot a lot of ups and downs um, mm-hmm. it, it can be a very both physically and and emotionally draining at times, but it gives you the opportunity to to be with and help people in in an extremely difficult time
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you have you have the ability to really feel like you are. Helping and uh, and making a difference and yeah
0: and and you also mentioned the year of the pandemic and you know New York City was in the news a lot in those in those early months just with the you know waves upon waves of of deaths from COVID and we didn't know what we didn't know and we were trying to figure things out what will you take with you from that time that uh, was both hard but also gave you the sense of really being part of the, uh, the compassionate side of humanity during this time.
1: Yeah, that was uh, a very the 10 weeks that really, you know, I know we're, you know, technically still in in the pandemic yeah. and, and covid's <laughs> still with us. Um, right. but I look at at the pandemic at least for us here in New York as as a 10 week a 10 week time period. Okay. Because there were there were ten weeks that that New York was was just gripped by by this pandemic death, and, and it was extremely scary time. And sure. I, I feel like there are probably people, you know, there'll be people listening and people from other parts of the country that we only kind of think we're dramatizing this and all, but but it really was a very scary ten weeks mm mm-hmm. To be here the amount and and to be just surrounded by and and i'm you know i'm I'm with people uh, who've lost you know loved ones all the time sure, and in a sense i'm you know death is ever present in in my life, but the the level that it reached during those ten weeks is something I can't even be fully fully described. To be surrounded by by that that much death, and mm. to have people people just begging for help. Mm. There was not enough. People couldn't, you know, just couldn't get help taking care of their taking care of their dead because they just weren't. There were just too many. Mm. The, so it yeah, and and it was a very difficult time too because and this was a time too that. You know, because churches were closed, right? Because of our elderly priest population, our clergy was was sequestered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a good portion of that ten weeks that it was us, the funeral directors. It was myself that was the only one there to to try to minister to the families, mm. to be there to pray with them, to try to shepherd them through, through the time. Because, you know, sadly, the clergy wasn't present. Hmm.
2: You
1: know, again, for, for different reasonings. But, you know, there were some younger priests who were able to kind of be out and be helpful and to be out and ministering. But, you know, again, because we have an aging priestly population, you know, they couldn't be there for people. And so it, it fell on us as the funeral directors. To be the ones to bear witness and to and and to pray with these uh, families, and that took a real real toll. Um, you know, I, I think my it, it definitely it definitely kind of damaged me a little bit with not not in my faith mm-hmm. in in the church as we see church, but it it did it did kind of. Uh, upset me with, you know, our, you know, that, that we, that we, that the churches were closed,
2: Mm.
1: that, that the clergy wasn't always there. And, and and that kind of, uh, you know, I lost a little, I said, unfortunately kind of, you know, hurt a little bit. My, uh, it it took me a little bit to come back to church, to come back Mm. to mass. When, when they opened up back again, I I wasn't ready to go back because I felt, I felt a little abandoned. Mm. You know, from that time, my faith it was never stronger, but I was you know i felt I, you know felt a little bit abandoned to be honest sure, so you know it's kind of taken some time to kind of come back from that
0: yeah, it was i I just think it was such a a strange time for almost everyone who'd been alive. It was our our first global pandemic, and you know people were making decisions the best that they could and then you know as they mm-hmm. picked up the pieces later you know in hindsight you know how would we handle things differently but what a remarkable perspective you had as sort of like the the one of the last people left that could help people and and that they couldn't even go through some of the normal grieving processes of seeing you know large groups of family and memorializing the person i mean there were those days in certain parts of the pandemic where it was handful of immediate family and and just i would imagine that was very difficult for those loved ones to go through that because they didn't have those family and friends supporting them because everybody else was afraid and going through the pandemic as well
1: right yeah yeah oh absolutely you know there was there were so many funerals where it was myself and and a handful of immediate family members as the only ones there to to bear witness to this and where words fail us, we turn to ceremony. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the Catholic Church is phenomenal at that. You know, we, you know we, we've gotten the ceremony down. We, <laughs> you know, we know, but during that time, that was taken from us also. Yeah. So again, where words fail, we turn to ceremony. And they took the ceremony away from us.
2: Mm.
1: The pandemic, it, it took the ceremony away from us you know we can no longer gather as we do as a people and and bury our dead the way the way we've done you know for centuries and and as as catholics you know to to not be able to celebrate funeral masses for people again it's always been such a an important part of of the catholic funeral ritual almost a point where to not have a mass is something that would normally be something that would be, you know, frowned on, you know, the, the importance uh, of, of a funeral mass. And so for that, for those 10 weeks or so, we couldn't celebrate any funeral masses uh, for people. We tried to kind of create new ceremonies Mm -hmm. through the pandemic. At one point we started, uh, we would uh, bring the hearse and the casket and the family to the front of church uh, and the priest would come out of the church with incense, would incense the casket, would bless the casket, would have a short little prayer liturgy, and then we would continue on to the cemetery. Hmm. So we kind of created some new rituals and some new ceremonies, you know, for for that time. But even that, it took it, it took a few weeks to kind of come to that. Right. For a few weeks, there, there was nothing.
0: Yeah. With with people dying. Throughout that time,
1: yeah, in extremely high numbers, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, a lot of decisions were made, you know we didn't know,, mm-hmm. which is why it was so terrifying, sure, we knew so little other than people were dying at an extremely fast rate and and again, I think sometimes people outside of New York have a hard time kind of really understanding what that was like, yeah. But it was you know i I can't even think about it without you know everyone hiding in their homes with the only sound on the streets and the only people on the streets were ambulances. Hmm. There were times where I was the only one on the street you know out, and there was ambulances and purses you know hmm. were the only were the only ones out on the street, yeah. And just an unending just seems, you know, I've I've helped and we've been through other mass fatalities from air crashes to September 11th. Sure. You know, and those things all had kind of finite numbers. We knew that, you know, two hundred and eighty three people were killed on this flight. We knew that just over three thousand people were in the Trade Center, but there was a defined number. There was a beginning and an end. We knew what that beginning and what that end were going to be and with the covid pandemic we had no idea yeah and we had no idea when this was going to end if it was going to end
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know that that just it 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 was just an extremely trying time
2: mhm
0: yeah i it, we were hearing stories of the pandemic elsewhere and here at Notre Dame in South Bend it was it was a little bit more removed, certainly not as dense population. But I'm from Kansas, and I was. It was like, well, what pandemic? I mean, the, out there it was <laughs> even more sporadic. But but uh, you know, eventually it has made its way throughout the world, and people have had different experiences of uh, kind of over the top loss, um, all 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 of a sudden. But uh, just thank you, thank you for sharing that for your ministry during that time. I can only imagine the burden that that was, not only trying to help people through their grief, but you know the fear for your own health and well-being and your family. I mean, we'd certainly count funeral directors and, and those helping bury the dead as as some of the heroes of the pandemic. So just an honor to to hear that story and have you share that with us. Yeah. So I do want to turn then to holiness, because that's the name of our podcast, Everyday Holiness, and (laughs) you've explained, you know, some of the ways that you've sought holiness throughout your life, but if I could turn to some models of holiness for you, who have been some of those uh, models in the church or in your family, in your life, who have shown you what it means to be a holy person?
1: Probably the obvious and primary examples, you know, in in my parents, Mm -hmm. in my own family, like Immediately here, I do come to someone who I think would, would be my son, Aiden. He has is something that comes from him, uh, you know, like that that spirituality. We feel like that in, in amongst my kids. You know, I had when I was at Notre Dame. I I definitely I had some strong kind of. I feel like the spiritual growths I had the first. One was probably when I was in high school and went on a retreat. And I'm not sure even now what it was about that retreat, but it was definitely had a strong impact on me. And then arriving at Notre Dame, uh, there was a priest that I was very fortunate to meet early on, my uh, father, Paul Holland, also a Jesuit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I laugh. I, I went to Notre Dame and I found the Jesuits. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> some people on the podcast may not like hearing <laughs> to a Jesuit talk, but no, that's all right. But it was a priest, Father Paul Holland, who I then had a very good relationship with throughout my four years in Notre Dame and had the opportunity to kind of worship with regularly. We would at I believe it's Lions Hall has uh, a chapel that's almost like a cave.
0: Yes, yeah. Kind of, you go down the stairs there. Yep, that's Yes, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. One of the most beautiful chapels at Notre Dame, and uh, Father Paul Holland. We would have mass there every Wednesday night at like seven thirty. Okay. And the same, I would say, the same ten people came every Wednesday, varying. Some people would miss weeks here and there, but the same, like you know, six to ten people would would come to the mass every Wednesday and developed a very strong kind of spiritual group there. This and and this is why I f- I was I was uh, I feel so happy that Aiden can go through this discernment process of Notre Dame because there is and maybe a lot maybe other college campuses are also like this, but after leaving Notre Dame realizing how how special it is, and how holy a place it is. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we take for granted when we're there, when we're on that campus. I think we we probably take it for granted, and then when we leave and continue our faith life outside of that campus, it's a lot more difficult. You know Notre Dame is is so nurturing for for that spirituality that you know really missed missed upon leaving. And when I aid in having the opportunity to to be there and study there and I, I tell him part of me wants to take a week off, go and just spend a week at Notre Dame and you know so that I can go to some liturgies, go to you know, just to be part of it again.
0: Yeah, yeah, reconnect. Such an that's such an important time. Yeah. Well, and that leads well into this final question, which is about your own pursuit of holiness, and some things that have worked for you in in striving after that in your life as a husband, as a father, as a funeral director, uh, anything like that that you could offer that has helped you in pursuing holiness?
1: I'm lucky because I have three things that, that have helped me do that, and that's uh, marriage as a vocation, really trying to grow with you know, with a spouse, the opportunity to raise kids, to see, to see God's grace in, in the kids, uh, in my children, and and in work. My uh, uncle Leo, who started the funeral homes uh, years ago, used to talk at the used to say the chief corporal work of mercy. You know, one of the chief corporal works of mercy is to bury the dead. Sure, but it is a tremendous privilege. Mm-hmm. To be entrusted with people's loved ones uh, is a tremendous privilege. And, it, you know, it's something that I I try to remind myself every day that this is a privilege and in any way that I can kind of help through that.
0: Yeah, I can I can only imagine that it's uh, a burden that you help people carry, but such a sacred time. In a sacred place uh, for you to be there during that time. So I I would imagine it would be fertile ground to those who are open to it, to growing in holiness. So, well, Patrick, thank you. Thank you for sharing so much of your story and your life with us. Thank you for the ministry that you do on behalf of the church and even to those who aren't part of the church but are still, you know, in need of help and assistance during such a critical time. And, you know, just thank you for sharing your witness to us are with us during this time on the podcast.
1: Thank you for for having me. You know, I'm, I'm honored that you truly truly honored that to be invited onto the program. One of the great things about my son being a part of the community again is it's brought me back into the community. It shows me, you know, realizing how much I miss, you know, the the Northern community. I've kind of forgotten about it for for a number of years. You know, it's just here working and living and going through things and of course watching games but but no real connection to the community so to be connected to the community again is is really wonderful and and I can feel it there Notre Dame has a presence our lady has a presence and you feel it when you're there and even kind of remotely uh, just having Aiden there I, I I feel like I can feel it and and I am so I'm so happy that he has you know the opportunity to to be there. And the discernment program is such a wonderful opportunity for him, no matter where it takes him, whether what he decides, he'll be a, you know, a better person for it all. So,
0: yeah. Well, we're honored to have you as part of our Notre Dame family and and glad to have you back at least uh, remotely on the podcast. So thanks again for joining us.
1: Okay. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We always invite you to subscribe and to rate the podcast, to share it with others who might enjoy these stories, as well as to sign up for our Faith indie daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thanks for joining us.